Before we start this episode, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which we're recording this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, both past, present, and emerging. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. In this episode, I chat with freediver Amber Burke. Your lungs are so small at these depths. At 30 metres underwater, you have four times the amount of pressure on your body as you do at the surface. I've always been fascinated with freediving as a sport. It's thrilling, intriguing, dangerous, and there's something almost otherworldly about it. Competitors take one massive breath of air before plunging headfirst as far down into the ocean as possible with only a tether to a line as their connection to the surface. The aim of the game? To dive as far down as possible while staying conscious enough to get to the surface again. Blackouts happen, so too have deaths. Amber Burke is Australia's leading freediver. She's the national champion at depth and in the pool and has broken 10 national records and recently won silver at the World Championships for a depth of 65 metres without fins. She can also swim four laps, that's over 200 metres, of an Olympic swimming pool and hold her breath for just shy of six minutes. Now, I want you to imagine what six minutes is like. So imagine holding your breath here, and I'm going to be back in exactly six minutes to give you an idea. Freediving has led this former synchronised swimmer on many adventures all over the world, and her aquatic career would start as a little girl growing up in Queensland. Yes, I always really enjoyed being in the water. I started snorkeling when I was really young, probably about four years old. Uh, My family got me into snorkeling. All our family holidays were near the water and I wanted to be a marine biologist actually growing up, uh, but that, it <laughs> cool. didn't happen that way, but I, I managed to find a, a life near the water anyway. <laughs> I reckon something that's closely related um, yeah. in a way. Um, where did you, you grew up in Queensland. Is that why snorkeling came into it? Yeah, I think so. And it's just something my whole family has enjoyed. My my grandmother also was a big snorkeler. She was snorkeling until she was well into her 70s. Um yeah, and just holidays by the beach and uh, on the Great Barrier Reef. And uh, we travelled around Australia in a caravan when I was about eight years old. And so, yeah, that was just how, how we did family holidays. I was, I was always in the water and I've always been a bit of a, a water person. I want to know because obviously holding your breath is a big deal with freediving. But, you know, those games you played as a kid where you had to hold your breath, did you do any of those? Were you good at those? Yeah, I definitely did. I was always the one that was making everyone compete to see who could hold their (laughs) breath the longest. And I think my parents uh, noticed me doing this a lot with other kids and also competing against my dad when I was really young. And they got me into synchronized swimming. Uh, So I actually spent most of my childhood and my teenage years as a synchronized swimmer and actually ended up competing on the Australian synchronized swimming team as, as a teenager. Wow, that's incredible. So how what what age were you when you took up synchronized swimming? Uh, I started it when I was about eight years old, uh, but I was a little young and uncoordinated and so I gave it up for a couple of years and went back when I was about 12. And uh, yeah, pretty much from when I started at 12, I started doing it pretty seriously and, and throughout high school was uh, training four hours a day, six days a week. 
Wow, that's incredible. Mm. How does yeah. it work? What do you have to do underwater with synchronized swimming? Because um, I didn't know much about it, but I do watch it when it's at the Olympics and it just blows my mind what everyone's able to do. And they're holding their breath underwater the whole time while doing that? Um, the routines are a few minutes long and about half of it is underwater with your, with your head underwater and your legs in the air. And, um, yeah, you don't get a lot of time to breathe in between. Um, yeah, you're, and when you are breathing, you're trying to smile and look like it's easy when it, <laughs> when it's really not, it's a really, really difficult sport and a lot of training, uh, goes into it and you have to have a really high level of fitness. Yeah. Really physical, isn't it? To do those moves underwater. Yeah, really hard because you can't the touch the bottom. So you're you're constantly sculling to keep yourself above the surface and and that combined with the breath holding, yeah, it's quite challenging. And smiling at the same yeah, time. Yeah, not looking trying as to though make you're it look like it, you're not suffering, which you are, you're really <laughs> suffering. <laughs> so you made the Australian team for synchronised swimming. Why did you quit synchronised swimming in the end? Yeah, I did it until I was about um, 18 or 19 and I tried out for a spot at the, uh, I think it was the 2008 Olympics um, and I, I actually injured my hip in the lead up to the Olympic trials um, and tried to manage it with uh, like a lot of painkillers and, and cortisone injections. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, I had injured it quite seriously. I'd torn the labral in it. Um, and that combined with being one of the more junior members of the team, I, I didn't make uh, that team. Mm. And then um, it was kind of a decision as to whether I uh, train for another four years and, and try for the next Olympics or um, whether I give it up. And unfortunately, there's just no money in synchronized swimming, <laughs> um, mm. which is a shame because I think we could have a really, really strong team in Australia because we are a country of, of water loving people and it, it is an Olympic sport. But um yeah, the, the athletes just aren't making any income. And I think mm. even if there was like a small part-time income, it, it might be possible to do it as an adult. But mm. uh, when you're 18, 19, um, you know, I was just at the point in my life where I wanted to leave home and, and stand on my own two feet. And so, uh, yeah, I decided to, to retire and um, start working and studying instead like a normal teenager. <laughs> so how soon then after did freediving come into your life? Yes, I... Um, I ended up uh, doing an electrical apprenticeship actually and I became an electrician and I really had no plans to ever go back into sport. Uh, I was pretty burnt out and, and didn't really want to look at a swimming pool or, or be in the water and I, I didn't for for uh, two or three years. I didn't touch the water. Any uh, water? Just, no, not at all. I, I didn't wow. go near a pool. I didn't go in the ocean. I was, was not at all interested. I think I just really needed a break from all that. Mm. Um, and yeah, had had no desire to ever uh, compete in sport ever again, really. Um, wasn't even <laughs> physically active, to be honest. Mm. Um, and then I, yeah, after working for a couple of years, I just, I just planned a backpacking trip um, because I loved my job as an electrician, but it was certainly something that I was never uh, passionate about. It was never mm. one of my passions. It was just a job. Um, mm. So I was looking for looking for something else really in my life. And, and so I planned this solo backpacking trip to Egypt of all places. <laughs> wow. I think, I think I just wanted to experience uh, something completely different uh, from, from Australia, from home, mm. experience a completely different culture. 
Um, so yeah, I went hmm. backpacking to Egypt and uh, it was just complete coincidence that I ended up in a town called Dahab in Egypt, which is a town on the Red Sea. And uh, maybe that was partly from my family holidays as a child. Uh, even, even going to a country like Egypt, I felt uh, drawn to be in a town near the water. Sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to let you know that it's now six minutes. That's how long Amber can hold her breath. Now let's hear more about her adventures in Egypt. Dahab happens to be one of the most famous locations in the world for freediving because it has a a blue hole right next to the shore that's 90 metres deep and it's surrounded Mm. by a coral reef. So it's just crystal clear water that just drops straight off to 90 metres. So Mm. freedivers travel from all over the world to, to basically try to dive to the bottom of this blue hole. And um, I'd never heard of the sport before. I had, had no idea what it was, uh, but I was fascinated because I, I liked the water and I, I had a history of, of holding my breath and spending a lot of time holding my breath. Um, so I signed up for a beginner course, just just having no idea what it was, uh, just a complete, yeah, complete beginner <laughs> course. And I, I just loved it. I was just, um, I was just amazed from the very beginning. I'd, I'd, I'd always thought that I could hold my breath, um, like mm. that I was pretty good at holding my breath. <laughs> like I'd, I'd spent a lot of time doing it. And as a synchronized swimmer, I could hold my breath for three minutes. And I, I thought there weren't many people who could hold their breath that long. And then on the first day of that freediving course, the instructor taught me to hold my breath for over four minutes. And that just, that just blew my mind. Yeah. I was, just, I was just like, wow. A, and that's not even, a, that's not much for freedivers. There are freedivers holding the breath for eight, nine, 10 minutes. So yeah, there's just wow. a whole nother level of breath holding out there. And I was fascinated by it. So you hadn't competed in synchronized swimming for a while, but you could still hold your breath for three minutes. And then after yeah. that training, you went four minutes. That's yeah, insane. a lot. Um, a lot of breath holding is just a is mental technique. So it's not so much the physical training. It's just knowing how to stay calm and how to relax. So even if you don't have the physical form, if if you know how to relax and uh, you can hold your breath for quite a long time. Mm. Can anyone do that, do you think? Or do you think there is something physiological in us that enables us to hold our breath, some people to hold their breath longer than others? Uh, to be honest, I think uh, almost everyone can hold their breath for three minutes without any training. Uh, for that first three minutes, it is um, mostly mind over matter. Uh, but once you start going longer than that, um, like four, five, six minutes, that, that's when uh, physical training comes into it. How long can you hold your breath underwater? Uh, nearly six minutes now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Wow. So, what do you? How do you train yourself to do that? What tra- and how long did it take to build yourself up from after that first course, four minutes to to where you are now? Uh, yeah, m- m- many years. Uh, it didn't it didn't take long to improve the breath holding side of things. I I joined a local club and we just train in the pool, just holding our breath for as long as we can. It's not, it's not a sport you can do on your own because if you're not breathing, uh, your oxygen levels are dropping. So there's always mm. a risk you can lose consciousness. Um, mm. We call it a blackout. Uh, so I found a club to train with and I just started practicing holding my breath about three times a week in the pool and just, just slowly progressed over the years. It, it didn't take long to uh, improve the breath hold. Uh, what did take a long time was was diving deeper. So over the years, I've gradually started di- diving deeper and deeper in the ocean, and it, it does take many years for your body to adapt to diving deep. Mm. 
So did you straight away go from freediving? Because some people do it as for recreation, you know, to be able to go deeper with, with fish and, yes, you know, being in Australia where we leave the Great Barrier Reef and being able to to free dive that. Some people do it, free dive for spearfishing. Um, mm. Did you immediately want to do it as a sport? No, not at all. I had I'd had no intention of competing when I started. I just thought it was a, a way to snorkel deeper basically uh, yeah. because I had always enjoyed snorkeling, but I had always been stuck on the surface. Uh, whenever I tried to duck dive down, I'd get the pain in my ears and I'd have mm. to turn around and go back to the surface. And so I thought that was, that was the limit really. You couldn't dive any deeper because of your ears. Uh, but on that freediving course, I learned how to equalize my ears properly. And then I just started diving deeper. Uh, But yeah, I had no intention of competing. I just wanted to dive down and have a look at the reef and Mm. swim with the fish. (laughs) Um, And then I just, I basically started training with the club and, um, and after a few months, yeah, yeah. Back in Brisbane, I got back to Brisbane and and found a local freediving club and and at, actually at the time there weren't many freediving competitions in Australia so there weren't really any opportunities to compete anyway so I was really just doing it for fun um, but then I started uh, approaching the Australian records in training and that's when I started thinking about it you know I could I could probably give this a crack and and the timing just ended up working out well. We ended up having the first freediving competition in, in many years, about a year after I started the sport. And I went there and set a couple of new Australian records. And, and then I was, yeah, I was hooked. <laughs> All right. For those who don't know, and I need clarification on these as well, it's probably a good time now to explain freediving as a sport and the types of freediving as a sport. Yeah. So, there's both uh, pool events where you're just seeing how long you can hold your breath for and how many laps of a swimming pool you can swim underwater. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what I started doing. Uh, it's e- more easy to get your hands on a swimming pool and, and just swim laps underwater with the club. Uh, and you're but only like one metre underwater at that stage? Yeah, yeah. So you're shallow. Yeah. So it's just it's just laps underwater in a pool. So it's mm. all about uh, distance, not depth. Mm. Uh, so you're just like um, either in a 25 or a 50 meter pool, you're doing a lap underwater, and then you're turning around without breathing and, and coming back and, and seeing how much distance you can cover. Um, and then there's also the the open water side of freediving, which is all about how deep you can dive. So so the time doesn't really matter. It's just who can dive the deepest in the ocean. And in that, there's different forms of that, isn't there? So you've yeah, you can have no fins, fins, monofin. Yeah. Uh, and are, are you always tethered to the to the line? So a line goes right down, right? Explain yeah, that. yeah. So in open water, they just drop a line uh, to as deep as you want to go. And yeah, you're either swimming down wearing fins, wearing uh, bifins, which are like uh, very long, skinny fins that you wear on each feet, or a monofin, which is like a mermaid tail or you're going down without fins, just swimming breaststroke. And there's a fourth event that we call free immersion for some reason. <laughs> and that's mm. just where you you pull yourself down that line and then pull yourself back up that line. Mm. Pull yourself down the line. So you're still tethered to it, but you, mm. 
So without kicking your legs or is that how it works? Yeah, so it's kind of like um, like if you go to a CrossFit gym and climb a rope, it's a bit like that but it's underwater. Uh, and the whole time you're wearing what we call a lanyard with a carabiner on the end that's connected to that line. So in, mm. and no matter what event you're doing, you are, yeah, you're tethered to that line so you can swim up and down it. Um, and that's just so you don't get lost in the ocean and so that if something does go wrong during the dive, they can pull that line to the surface and pull you up with it. Yeah, but free immersion, you just go down. You don't, do you kick your legs? Or? No, you're just, it's just all upper body strength. You're just using your arms to pull yourself Pulling. down that rope and back up. So what's your favourite? Yeah, my favourite is swimming without fins. And also for me, the most challenging part has been equalizing my ears so swimming without mm. fins is the is the shallowest of all the disciplines so that's what I have focused on the most at the moment so yeah you find it hard to and there's even different techniques to equalize your ears yeah there are um so when I started freediving I was using a technique um where you are you're holding your nose and blowing but you're using your diaphragm to push the air from your lungs mm. to your ears and this isn't very effective in freediving because it's a long way for that air to travel from your lungs all the way to your ears. And also because as you're diving, your lungs are compressing, they're getting smaller and smaller. So mm. it gets harder and harder to push that air to your ears. So on that first freediving course, I learned a, a more effective technique where you're closing off your throat and you're just using your throat and your tongue to push the air to your ears. So this works much better for freediving. And then as you get even deeper, the techniques get uh, even more advanced. So once you dive past 30 metres, your lungs are so small at these depths. At 30 metres underwater, you have four times the amount of pressure on your body as you do mm. at the surface. So mm. your lungs are a quarter of the size and it gets really, really hard to bring any more air up from your lungs. If you try to bring air up to equalise your ears, you just, you can't, you, yeah, you mm. can't bring any more air up. Uh, so what you have to do is you have to store any air that you want to use to equalize your ears in your mouth. And you do this at around 20 meters before your lungs compress too much. Mm. So you put all this air into your mouth into your mouth, and you puff out your cheeks. And then you have to hold that air in your mouth for, your, for the whole dive. And that's, it can be really challenging um, mm. because if you swallow that air if, um, or if you like relax your throat at all and you lose that air, then you can no longer equalize your ears ears and you have to turn around and go back to the surface um so if you ever try like running with your like cheeks puffed out holding your breath with air in your mouth um it's really really hard to keep that air in your mouth and and, and it's yeah. the same thing um because you're exerting quite a lot of energy to get down and trying to keep air in your mouth at the same time it is really difficult mm. what does it feel like with that pressure as you go down as you descend what does it feel like when you hit 20, 30 metres and, like you said, your lungs have a, a, mm. a quarter of their size. What does that feel like? What does it feel like on your face, everything? So the area you feel it most is definitely your chest because it's your lungs that are compressing the most. So it's so most of your body you don't feel the pressure, but anywhere there are air spaces, so your ears, your sinuses, your lungs. Um, if you're equalizing your ears, your ears will feel fine. So it's, it's mostly your chest. Uh, mm. And the first time you dive to those depths, you can feel it 
quite a lot on your chest. It feels like, you know, like someone's standing on your chest or giving you like a really tight hug. It's quite a lot of pressure. Um, but your body does uh, start to adapt. And the more you dive to those depths, the more flexible you become. And it gets to the point where you don't notice the pressure at all. Um, mm. I think this is the reason also why a, a lot of competitive freedivers are quite a bit older like um, than in other sports because mm. it takes many, many years for your body to adapt to these depths and, mm. and many years of, of doing many, many dives. What about your face? I heard you once say that your face, because that's where in your face mask um, mm. and your eyes because there's there's a an, a, um, an air gap there as well that that can, an air pocket that that can compress what is what happens then yeah so if you're diving wearing a mask then that air in your mask is going to compress as well and it's going to like uh squash onto your face so you have to remember to exhale air into the mask as you're diving deeper um the depths I'm diving at the moment, though, I'm, I'm not wearing a mask because it's just a waste of air. And uh, if you're in competition, there's nothing really to look at anyway. You're just diving mm. straight down a line and there's nothing around. So um, I either don't wear anything at all on my face or I wear goggles, but I fill them up with water. Uh, so then there's no air space to compress, um, but you can't see much, obviously, with the say, goggles the that are of, full of water. Yeah, I was like, what's the use of having goggles full of water? It'd be the same as... Having, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Do you have actually, good, you, can you see underwater quite well without a mask or without goggles? I can, yeah, you, you, yeah, I'm surprised at how well you can see underwater actually. Um, like it's, it's blurry, but you get used to it. And, mm. um, in competition, all you have to see is the tag. So you're diving down the line and you have to get to the bottom plate, which is at the depth that you announced you were going to do. And then they have tags there. So you have to go to the bottom plate, grab a tag and bring that tag back to the surface to prove that you got to that depth. Mm. Uh, so all you have to be able to see really is one of those tags. So you can grab one and get back to the surface. Um, for the goggles, uh, the reason I wear them is because uh, the water at the surface is often a lot warmer than the water at depth. And so it's nice to have that warm water on your face uh, as you're diving deeper and deeper because the water's getting a lot colder and it can cause you to tense up. Uh, yeah. So I, that's why I wear the goggles full of water. <laughs> I was wondering what what's the point of that then? But yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It's just wow. to keep the cold water off your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have to, where do you put the tag? Do you just hold on to it as you make your way up or, you know, where do you put it? Yeah, so I put mine in my hood. I wear a, a two-piece wetsuit that has a hood and then I just tuck it into the side of my hood. But the tags are actually Velcro. Uh, so they're attached um, to the bottom plate with Velcro. And then some some freedivers make like a belt out of Velcro and then they can just attach it. Uh, but I I worry about losing it. <laughs> so I, what happens I if you lose it? Is that, is that a it's, disqualification? No, it's actually not really a big deal. It's like a one-point penalty if you lose the tag. Uh, sure. But if you're going for a record, uh, the record doesn't count if you don't have the tag. So, it's yeah, it's important to get that tag. Okay, so how do you win when you're doing this? Because you're talking about points now. What's the point system? Yeah, so in competition, it's it's all about who who dives the deepest. So you have to announce the depth that you're going to get to the day before, which can be really tricky. Um, Ooh, a bit of mind games there. Do you meet your competitors 
the day yeah. before and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go <laughs> 65 or in actual fact, you're going to go 73 or something. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's really strategic and it's, it's a big secret. So you, yeah, you don't want anyone to know what you're doing and, um, yeah, and you're trying to figure out what your competitors are also doing. Uh, so I just got back from the world championships in Turkey and I knew that uh, to get a medal, I would have to announce uh, more than 60 metres, maybe closer to 70 metres. Um, but you want to announce a dive that you know you can do uh, because yeah. if you announce too deep, uh, you end up, you probably end up turning around early. And for every metre you turn early, you get one penalty point. So, so if you turn five metres early, you might end up with 10 meters of penalty points and that puts you out of the running for a medal or um if you announce too deep you risk having a blackout on the surface and then you get disqualified so so it's really important to announce a dive you know you can do but you also want to announce enough to hopefully get you on the podiums it's, it's yeah tricky. yeah that's super super tricky so what's the where do the points come in so you have to go the deepest but how, what is what is a points like do you get points for the depth that you go to and then that's yeah. how you they subtract subtract the penalty points? Yeah, so it's basically just one point per metre. Um, so I announced uh, 65 metres, um, so I got 65 points. Um, but say I lost the tag, that would be a one-point penalty, which would be mm. 64 points. Um, or if I turned five metres early, so if I turned at 60 metres, you get 60 points for every metre you dived, but then you get the five-point penalty for the five metres you didn't do, plus the one-point penalty for not getting the tag, so you end up with, like, 54 points, right. which is which is um, well out of the running. So, uh, yeah, it's important to announce a dive you know you can do and how many how many dives do you get do you get just the one chance the one dive yeah only one uh so it's it's really high pressure um and this is at a world championship so at a world championships you only get one dive per event and for me um I only focus on the one event really at the moment so I, so I go all the way to <laughs> across the world just to get this one dive and uh have to hope you make the dive let's talk about the blackouts then mm. because this is a big part of it um what when did you have your first blackout when did that happen and how did you react uh so my first uh blackout actually happened on my first ever freediving course <laughs> which is super mm. unusual which which never happens uh but this was um, entirely because I had a lifetime of breath hold training behind me um, with the synchronized swimming and I'm a competitive person. Um, <laughs> the more breath holding you do, the more you build up a tolerance for it. So it gets easier and easier to push yourself to this uh, blackout limit. Um, so I had a, a blackout really, really early on when I started freediving, basically as soon as I started freediving. And it came as a complete shock to me. Um, I think like most people have tried holding their breath. If, if you've ever tried holding your breath, it, it's, it's super uncomfortable, right? Like, mm. like you get this burning sensation in your chest, your everything in your body is screaming at you to t just to take a breath. So it feels like it must be really, really difficult to hold your breath until you lose consciousness. Like uh, me personally, I thought that was something I would never be capable of. Like how, mm. how could you possibly overcome those sensations and hold your breath until you lose consciousness? Um, 
but it actually happens a, a lot easier than you would expect. And, and unfortunately, mm. that's why we have um, like so many fatalities of people in swimming pools holding their breath, um, not realizing how easily it can happen, mm. um, especially when you're underwater. And if there's like a bit of adrenaline it's, and uh, spearfishing, especially um, because of that added adrenaline and that distraction, uh, it's quite easy to push yourself um, mm. until you black out. And you don't always get any warning, so it doesn't happen slowly. It's not like uh, your vision starts to slowly go and, and it gives you a warning sign to, to come yeah. up. Um, actually, uh, when it happened to me, I, I had no warning at all. I just remember, mm. like, my legs were burning a bit and then I was um, being held on the surface by uh, the instructor and he was telling me to breathe Um one fortunate thing about blacking out in freediving is that your your airways close off, so you don't breathe in any water, um, so you don't drown. Uh, so if you black out underwater, as long as someone brings you to the surface very uh, quickly, then you mm -hmm. will automatically start breathing again. Uh, so mm. it's definitely not as serious as drowning and there's no lasting effects, but it is really important that someone does get you to the surface immediately. Do you have them quite often? No, um, no, I don't think it's a good idea uh, to, to push yourself to a blackout frequently. Uh, yeah. We haven't found any signs of like brain damage or lasting effects. Your your brain is really good at, at looking after itself and, and that's the reason it does blackout uh, mm. because as soon as your oxygen levels start dropping, it shuts down to protect itself from any brain damage. Mm. Um, but it is not a good idea and it's also not really a good look. It's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> so right. um, yeah, you want to stick to your limits and um I had a few blackouts when I first started the sport because I didn't mm. um I didn't really know the signs and I um yeah I was just new to the sport but uh the more training you do um the more aware you become of where your limits are and and I've always been really careful to to dive with a buddy because there is always a risk that it could happen and um mm. so you always you just can't ever train alone because I was watching your world champs in Turkey um and I was just watching it and then someone blacked out and like I knew this could happen but I was so taken aback by watching that like I I just my I just my heart was beating I drew breath I didn't know this person but mm. I was just in total shock watching them bring them up to the surface um and then it felt to me like I was watching someone die and it was really quite confronting what yeah. do you say to that to people who see that? And do you still get quite confronted by watching blackouts happen in front of you? Yeah, it can be really scary to see. And I think it's really important um, to see that the diver is okay and that they do uh, start breathing again. So that's why when we live stream competitions, we try to keep the camera on the diver so that you can see that, you know, after they're brought to the surface and after a few seconds they start breathing again and mm. they're okay. Um, we always get checked over by a medic. There's a medic at every competition and they, you know, check your oxygen levels, make sure you're all okay. They, they give mm. you a bit of oxygen to help you recover faster. Um, but really it's, it's the same as any other sport. Um, you know, it's the same as people collapsing at the end of a triathlon or uh, it's actually not as serious as receiving a concussion in like football or boxing uh, because mm. that is damage to the brain, whereas in freedom Diving, your brain is, is shutting down before it has mm. received any damage. So, so in a way, um, yeah, it's not as serious as, as a lot of injuries in other sports, but it, it does look scary, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, her if you eyes don't know what you're the seeing. Head. The commentator's mm. like, 
oh, that's disappointing. It's a bit of a red flag now. <laughs> yeah. like, disappointing, is she okay? You know? yeah. yeah. And you're right, they took her off camera for a bit. They're like, we'll just go off camera. I'm like, that makes it worse. Yeah, so yeah, it's better it to is. see them, see they're okay. There have been a number, you mentioned it before, a number of deaths in freediving and high-profile ones as well. Do you remember the first time you heard about those and just how you felt and how re- you reacted to that to that news at the time? Mm. Well, actually, um, like fatal- fatalities in competitive freediving almost never happen. We've only ever had uh, one. Um, but when they do happen? happen. Yeah, they do happen a lot in um, uh, non-trained freedivers, so people who are unaware that they have to be diving with a body um, and uh, quite frequently in spearfishing, uh, mm. lots of young men spearfishing on their own. Uh, so for that reason, I think it's really important to um yeah, to really try and share this knowledge and to train as many people as possible in mm. how to free dive safely. Um, because, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, the the number one rule is just to not hold your breath alone in the water and, and that can avoid almost all fatalities. Mm. Um, yeah, <laughs> basically. What about the one in competitive? When did that one happen? And do you remember how you felt at the time when you learned about that? Yeah, this was uh, extremely shocking, actually, and it was someone I knew, um, like a friend of a friend and and someone I'd met at competition. And I think uh, this was a few years ago now, but I think at the time uh, freedivers kind of thought that we were a bit invincible because Mm -hmm. there had been, you know, 30 years of of organised freediving competitions and we had never had a fatality. Uh, Despite the fact that the sport has quite a reputation for being dangerous, uh, we kind of prided ourselves with never having a fatality in competition. And, Mm -hmm. And so when we had the first one it was it was a real shock and it really shook the whole community because it is quite a small community and and we do almost all know each other uh, especially Mm. at a high level um so yeah it was it was really really devastating and and really hard um hard news and uh basically what had happened was it was a uh it was a lung injury and a, a diver that was diving with a with a previous injury and it was in a location where there wasn't um a lot of medical support so there wasn't a hospital um and he yeah pro- most likely didn't get the medical treatment that um mm. might have saved him if he had been in a in a location with a, a hospital and a, yeah how do you mean a lung injury uh so because that of the extreme pressure at depth um the one injury that freedivers can be susceptible to is, is barotraumas, which is a, a pressure-induced injury. And barotraumas can happen in your ears if you don't equalize your ears or in your eyes if you uh, don't equalize the mask on your face. But they can also happen to your lungs uh, because as you're diving deeper, your lungs are compressing. And um, there are ways to avoid uh, lung injuries. I've, I've never had one uh, personally uh, because I've always been really careful to progress really slowly and really look after uh, my lungs because I want to mm. keep diving for as long as mm. possible. Um, but it's it's a risk in freediving. It's something uh, all freedivers uh, should be aware of and, and are aware of in, in competition. Um, and it, it can happen for a few different reasons, um, but one of them is uh, diving too deep too fast and so not, not doing that really slow progression and not giving your body a chance to adapt to the, that pressure at depth. Right. I was going to ask a question about that because I know, and I, I was at the risk of sounding really ignorant, but, you know, when you hear about the bends and things like that mm. and descending slowly and, but I hadn't really heard freedivers talk about that very much. So you have to descend slowly and you have to come up 
to the surface slowly as well? Is that, uh, and can you explain no. with the, yeah. <laughs> can you explain that? Because I'm sure yeah. there's other people out there going, what about the bends? Does that yeah, happen absolutely, when you're like yeah. in free diving as well? Yeah, no, it's, it's very different from the bends. So the bends is much more common in scuba diving uh, because you're breathing compressed air. So the bends is where nitrogen gets into your blood and can cause all sorts of issues like stroke, a heart attack. Um, but uh, because freedivers aren't breathing that compressed air, that uh, they don't have that added nitrogen at depth, um, the bends is really rare. So you can uh, dive down as quickly as you want and you can shoot back to the surface as quickly as you want. Mm. Um, but the risk is um, diving to depths that you're not ready for. So we start really gradually in freediving. We start diving to 10 or 20 meters and we do that for, you know, a few months or a year. And then you add a few more meters every year. So you might add 10 meters every year. Um, so I've been diving about 11 years now and now I'm diving to about 70 meters deep. Uh, mm. you don't want to like start the sport tomorrow and decide to dive to 70 meters because mm. uh, your body's just not ready for it and you don't have that flexibility to be able to dive that deep so mm. it's just a matter of um, progressing really gradually over over many years and, and giving your body a chance to adapt to that pressure and to build up that flexibility. How do you know when you go down because I think like if you're running a race right? You pushing to the finish line. And when you get to the finish line, that is it. You can stop. Your Mm. finish line technically is halfway. Mm. And then you have to have enough energy to go all the way back. It's almost like the halfway point of a marathon. Like you just, it's the worst point sometimes because you're like, I'm halfway. And then you're like, I've got to do all of that all again. So yeah, I mean, how do you know and how do you stop that adrenaline when you know that you're not going to make it all the mm. way up? How do you know that you have to pull out five metres before essentially your finish line and then go all the way to the surface? Yeah, this is something. Yeah, this is something that actually makes freediving really unique because you can't just show up and and give a hundred percent. Yeah, in like in other sports. So for for one, you you're deciding how deep you want to dive the day before, and uh, it's really a matter of like keeping your ego in check and uh, being (laughs) really honest with yourself and what you're capable of. So if you dived. 68 meters uh you might not try more than 70 the next day so we don't do big jumps uh so if you know you did a 68 meter dive then you know you can most likely do 70 Uh, Mm. but it is really difficult to know how you're feeling when you're halfway through a dive um so it's really important to be really in tune with your body so if you wake up feeling unwell uh it's really important to make that decision not to dive um Mm. and this is really common uh in free diving and it's really devastating is that you often travel the way to a world championships and you're not feeling 100 percent um, and sometimes you know at the beginning of a dive that, yeah, you're not going to make it and you just have to turn around and go back to the surface. And it's it's really common and it's really upsetting, um, but mm. it, it happens. Um, but generally, you know, in the, in the first few metres of a dive, whether it's going to go well or not. Um, once you get to the bottom, uh, so if you get to the bottom plate at 70 metres or however deep that is, uh, usually, you know, you're going to get back to the surface, you know it's going to be a good dive. Um, but if it's not, if something does go wrong, it uh, almost always goes wrong near the surface, so in that last 10 or 20 metres before the mm. surface. 
And so for that reason, we have safety divers who come down and meet us uh, for Mm. that last, um, you know, 20 metres. And then if something goes wrong, they can help you to the surface. At at the World Championships, they had a, a... a safety diver on an underwater scooter and so they mm. would come all the way down to 40 meters which is like more than mm. half your dive <laughs> um mm. so and then they can just like if you don't feel like well or like you're going to get back to the surface you can just give them a sign and they'll just give you a hand back to the surface yeah so what if something happens at 70 60 meters there's no one down there because the people they're free diving themselves they're safety measures aren't they mm. those safety people yeah, they are free diving themselves. So they're only coming down to meet you for the end of your dive. So yeah, the majority of your dive, you are on your own. Um, so at, at 70 meters, you're, yeah, you're on your own. <laughs> so, what happens so if, if anything happens? goes wrong, yeah, if anything goes mm. wrong, um, you have to manage it and you have to stay calm. You can't afford to panic. Um, in a, in a world championships, uh, we have a, we have a drone, like a camera that follows you down. So there is a live feed of your dive to the surface. Mm. And so the organization is watching you dive. And if anything goes wrong, they will drop a counterweight and they will drag you to the surface using the line that you're tethered to. Um, mm. But we, but that this equipment is, is really expensive. So we only have that at, at World Championships, basically. And so the majority of your training mm. dives or competition dives, um, yeah, you're on your own. Um, and... Basically, you get to the bottom of the line and you give a tug on the line to let your buddy know that you're coming back to the surface and, and that's the only way they know that you're coming back to the surface. Wow. Uh, so if and, something happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if something happens, if you don't uh, return to the surface, they pull that line up. Um, but, yeah, that's that's extremely rare and I haven't experienced that situation. I think, um, you know, freediving is a sport where you just have to progress so gradually and, you have to have done these dives tens, hundreds, thousands of times to the point that you know you're capable of it and that uh, you're never really pushing yourself too far out of your comfort zone. Um, so, like, for me, I've, I feel so comfortable on these dives, um, you know, more comfortable than I do on land. <laughs> mm. yeah. What I heard somewhere that Australia doesn't have that many places to train for this why yeah we're surrounded by water I don't understand why that is is it we don't have places close enough to the shoreline that are deep enough or what's the go yeah that's exactly it so like before I started freediving the ocean seemed like such a big deep place and and now it actually seems kind of shallow (laughs) um so especially in Australia uh, the ocean is really shallow for for a very long way out and we we do try to train um but you have to go a long way offshore um and then the mm, ocean is to quite get wild depth. yeah to get right. to get 60 70 meters you're going an hour offshore in a boat um mm. and then you've you're dealing with really big swell and current and poor visibility uh mm. whereas um some of the countries that we go to compete like turkey or the philippines you've got really deep water within swimming distance offshore you've got 100 meters depth it's uh the visibility is great it's 20 meters visibility it's it's flat and it's warm so it's it's like diving in a bath uh which is very different (laughs) to diving here diving here is a bit of a battle (laughs) yeah and you go to Stradbroke Island for your training 
Yeah, so I do uh, teach quite a bit in Brisbane. It's it's not that great for really deep training and diving, but it's great for teaching beginners. So I teach beginner free diving courses uh, off both Brisbane and the Gold Coast, and the Gold Coast. And we go off, yeah, we go off Stradbroke Island, or we go straight off the Gold Coast, and and we can get twenty meters quite easily. And it's actually a great location to dive because we have a lot of incredible wildlife uh, off the east coast of Australia. Mm. Uh, like there's manta rays and turtles and uh, green nurse sharks. So it's yeah, it's a beautiful location to dive in and great for beginners um, getting started in freediving. I'm sure a lot of people are thinking what I'm thinking right now is sharks. Are there yeah. when you free dive? <laughs> are there sharks around? Does that scare you? Uh, you in feel? Australia, yeah. <laughs> There's always sharks around. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't mind sharks if I can see them. I um, Yeah, I, I enjoy diving with them. Um, but I'm I'm pretty careful diver too. If if the conditions are looking a bit sketchy, like if the visibility is really poor, if it's mm. an overcast day, then I'd personally prefer not to dive. Um, so I think yeah, it's just a matter of choosing your days. And, and like if you can see them, I'm I'm quite happy to dive with the sharks, especially uh, really? like the sharks we have off the, off the east coast. Like the green ass sharks are incredible to dive with. It's re- it's really special to have them here. Have you had any scary encounters with any sharks? Um, no, I haven't actually. I'm, I've found, yeah, they're generally more scared of us than we are of them. And I'm usually trying to get close to get some video or some photos and, and they right. take off pretty quickly. Yeah. So yeah, not with sharks. No. Two questions. What do you, f- what does it feel and sound like when you're going to those depths of the ocean? And what do you think about while you're doing that? I'm really just uh, staying in the moment as much as possible. Um, and in that way, freediving is really similar to meditation and a lot of freedivers do a lot of meditation. Uh, it is it, it is really important to just stay entirely in the moment. It's important for relaxation because if you tense up, it gets harder to equalize your ears and harder to hold your breath. Uh, so you're just thinking entirely about what you're doing right now and and not thinking about like what you did yesterday or what you've got to do tonight. Mm. Um, so it's really... So you're yeah, just thinking about equalizing. Are you thinking I'm at this depth now or... Yeah, yeah, just um, yeah, paying attention to how your body is feeling and equalizing your ears. Um, it's really quiet down there, so it's it's very relaxing. You're kind of leaving uh, all the stresses of a real life behind on the surface. Did I see going back to those safety measures? I remember seeing because I've been fascinated with freediving such a long time. Um, did I see? At one stage, they did have scuba divers at various heights, and then one set of scuba dive, if someone blacked out, would bring them up to another height. Because they obviously can't ascend really quickly. Mm. Is that what you yeah. said? Yeah, about uh, probably 20 years ago now, they did use scuba divers for safety in freediving events. Uh, but it eventually got to the point where the freedivers are diving so deep now that it's more dangerous for the scuba divers than it is for the freedivers. So it just doesn't make any sense. And mm. it takes uh, scuba divers so long to decompress from those right. depths. So if you're going to 70 metres on, on scuba, it's going to take you so long to get back to the surface. Mm. Um, and uh, so at the World Championships I was at, we had... 140 athletes uh so you can't really have scuba divers on every single one of those dives it would it would take them hours to get back to the surface so yeah yeah, it's just not really practical now you took a year off because you wanted the world record and you took a no fins record because firstly before I go into that Mm. your no fins depth is similar to your fins depth how how is that 
Yeah, it's, it's quite unusual, but um, it's just because of my ears. So my ears are just stopping me at the moment around around the 70 meter mark. So I can I can get there <laughs> pretty much anyway with fins or without fins. Um, so yeah, that's why I'm focusing on the no fins because I'm uh, reasonably close to the world record at the moment. Um, but I, I would really like to dive deeper in, in the other disciplines. I'm just uh, still still learning yeah, how to equalize my ears and how to dive deeper. So tell me about that journey where you took a year off to chase the world record. How did that work? Just to focus on that one world record, no fins depth. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's it's hard to train in Australia. So I, I spent a lot of time in Asia just yeah, trying to hit these depths. And um, at the moment it was 73 metres. So you're just trying to do this 73 metre dive without fins. And um, yeah, I, I did get there finally, mm. um, but had a, yeah, it's my only blackout I've ever had in the ocean. Actually, I, I got back to the surface and I had a really short blackout on the surface. So I, I did the dive, um, but because I lost consciousness on the surface, I was disqualified, unfortunately. Um, take me there because that must be incredibly frustrating. You put your life on hold mm. for this world record. You finally essentially do do it but had a micro blackout on the surface and but that doesn't you should think that you get to the surface and then it should be enough right yeah but that's not enough yeah it was it was really heartbreaking um because I I don't remember the blackout happening either so Mm. so in my memory it was the perfect dive I I really thought that the issue was going to be getting to the bottom um but I got to the 73 meter mark and I grabbed the tag and and I also wasn't prepared for the for the feeling of of thinking I had a world record at, at 73 metres underwater. I think, you know, that's sure. probably something you don't get in many sports where you've where you've hit your target. And, yeah, like you said, you've still got half the dive left to do. Mm. Um, but when I grabbed that tag, I really felt like I had the world record and I think I started celebrating a bit too early and I was a bit too relaxed on the way back up. And, um, mm. yeah, when I got to the surface, I, I thought I'd done it because uh, it was such a quick blackout. I don't remember it happening at all. And then the judge gave me the red card and told me I was oh. disqualified. And yes, but um, I mean, it, it's a good rule to have because we can't have uh, world records in freediving where people are unconscious on the surface. Like it's just not a good look for the sport. Um, mm. So I think it's really important for people to come back up and, and be okay and show that they're okay. And, and for that to, yeah, for that to be a legit dive. Um, and Did you shake uh, yourself off, dust yourself off and do it again? Or yeah, is it well, once that chance is gone, you can't just wait a couple of hours and do it again? Yeah, you can't really do it again the same day. Uh, it's just um, takes too much out of you doing that one dive and there's just there's just no chance you'll make it the second time around. Mm. Um, but I had, like I'd organised this entire record attempt myself and I had planned for um, not making it on the first day. So I had a rest day and then I had a second attempt. Um, but unfortunately, I, I woke up sick the next day with a head cold. And I mm. think I just, uh, just all the stress on my body of the training leading up to that attempt and then actually doing the dive and, and the you know, the, um, the emotions that came with not making it, uh, was just too much for my body. And I just, mm. just got a head cold, unfortunately. And, uh, you just can't dive with a head cold, like, because no. your, your sinuses and your ears, you can't equalize them. Um, so that was the end of the record attempt. So yeah, it was sad. When was that? When did you do that? That was in, uh, 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then I took, I took 2019 basically off the sport just to try and work and, and save up money to try again. And I was going to try again in, in 2020 <laughs> and that mm. didn't happen either. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. And then I, I ended up having about four years off, off, uh, international competition. So it wasn't until this year that I, I managed to get back to competing internationally, which w- wasn't intended at all. It was just how life works. <laughs> so how did that, what made you want to take a break? Was it COVID? Was it impossible? Or were you just psychologically, did that, <laughs> did that chasing of that world record kind of burn you out for a while? Uh, no, I never intended to take a break at all. I, um, I, I did tend to take 2019 off, but mostly for financial reasons because uh, sure. taking, taking a year off work was expensive. Um, and uh, so I yeah, had plans to try again in 2020 and I actually I had a really uh, great government job uh, leading up to 2020. Mm-hmm. I'd been in the same job for 10 years and uh, it had taken me a really long time to like take the plunge and um, and leave that job uh, to like chase the dream. And mm-hmm. uh, finally in, in February 2020, I quit the job and I like sold my car and I was going to go free dive overseas indefinitely. And I did. I moved to the Philippines and, and that lasted about three weeks until COVID hit. COVID. <laughs> so it's just yeah. ter- terrible timing. Um, And then I was stuck in the Philippines and I had to make a decision as to whether I stay there and hope I can keep training, but there was no way to make any money or if I come back home and I was lucky enough to get probably the last flight out of the Philippines and back to Australia. Mm. Um, And then I ended up back in Australia uh, working in a factory uh, commissioning machines that make medical face masks. So ah. instead of instead of traveling the world freediving for a year, I was I was working in this factory ten hours a day every day of the week making medical face masks. So it was a, it yeah. was a real one eighty, and it took yeah it took some t- getting used to. I, I must say uh, it was a yeah. lot of backlash, like a um, yeah it was it was a shock. Difficult. It was a shock yeah. to the system. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But it kept me busy and it like kept me, kept me occupied and um, actually didn't train at all in twenty twenty. Like we uh, couldn't really dive. Um, it was hard to train with the club in the pool because of the lockdown. So, so I didn't free dive at all for the entire year, which was not at all what the plan was. Um, mm. But I did, I did go to the gym a lot, and I, I think it has, it helped my free diving immensely uh, because right. I, I spent, I spent the whole year at the gym, and I uh, got a lot stronger and uh, worked on my fitness a lot, and then was able to get back into competing in 2021, and then. Uh, finally in 2022 was able to travel again and and compete internationally um and I think yeah I think having that time off actually ended up being the best thing uh I could have done uh because uh this year I've had like the best result I've ever had Mm. um at a world championship (laughs) so yeah so it really it really uh worked out well in the end and that was of course in Turkey at the world champs getting the silver tell me about that dive and and what that achievement meant to you uh, it's just it's just been um, an, an absolute highlight of my entire freediving career. Um, I've it was my fourth uh, world championship, like depth world championship, and I've I've tried this dive so many times, uh, and so many times I've I've managed to do it in training uh, without any issues, and then I've gone to do it on the day at the world championship, and I've I've had trouble equalizing my ears, and I've had to mm. turn around early. Um, mm. And it's just happened to me again and again and again. Um, mm. And it's, it's a huge investment, um, like the financially and the, the time and, and taking the time off work and the time off your life. Um, mm. 
<laughs> to get to these events because uh, they're always in the other on the other side of the world. So it's a long way to travel. And um, yeah, and so I like again and again, I've traveled to this world championships and, and have been attempting to dive for a medal. And uh, every time uh, just like making small mistakes in my equalization and having to turn early. Um, so this year I had to do a lot of, um, I'd say like mental training, um, to really try and break that like negative cycle, uh, Mm. because it starts, it starts getting in your head. Um, I think when you, when you start a sport and you haven't really experienced true failure, you feel, you feel like you're capable of anything, like you're invincible and like no one can stop Mm. you. And then once you start experiencing this failure, uh, time and time again, um, for me, the hard part wasn't wasn't getting back up. It wasn't trying again uh, because I knew I would keep freediving regardless. I'd keep competing regardless of the result. Um, but the hard part was definitely convincing myself that I was capable of this dive and that I was worthy to stand on that podium alongside these divers that I idolize. Mm. Um, so that that was the real challenge. And um, yeah, working on that a lot this year um, on allowing myself to, mm. to make that dive and um, after, after failing to make it so many times. Uh, so mm. it was just, it was just such a relief and I just honestly couldn't believe I'd done it. Uh, it was just, yeah, just amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. How deep was that dive? So that was 65 meters. Yeah. Without yeah. fins. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What was the, what did the person who won, what did they, how deep did they go? So they did 70 and, uh, yeah, so we ha- like I said, we have to announce the depth the day before mm. and, and you're trying to announce enough to get you on the podium but uh, you want to announce a dive you know you can do. And I knew it would be... You can't change it up at the last minute. You can't go, no. she went 70, now <laughs> I want to attempt 70. Yeah, that would be great if you could. But, no, yeah, it's a, it's a total secret um, and you can't know what anyone else is doing unless they tell you but they're not going to. No, <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, so I, I knew like roughly like you're kind of you know you're trying to find out what people are doing in trainings so I knew roughly that's a what safety what mechanism too right so you yes. don't get egos involved and too Absolutely. competitive in doing something that you're actually not capable of that makes a lot of sense actually yeah that's right yeah. and um you're also uh you're not allowed to announce five meters more than what you've done in training but that's something that's a bit hard to police but uh sure. the, but yeah. the organization uh, does try to restrict people from from attempting dives they're not ready for mm. um but yeah, I knew mm. uh, that it would have to be like a uh, in the sixties or early seventies to uh, get gold. Um, but all I had managed to do in training was sixty-five meters, and uh, I kind of went into this competition with a different game plan of like playing it safe and and just doing a dive that I knew I could do. And so I'd done sixty-five in training, and I decided not to push it any more than that. I just I'd just repeat that mm. diving competition and have a nice, clean, easy dive and. Uh, and when the start list came out, I was actually in, in third position. So mm-hmm. um, two divers had nominated 70, uh, 71, 70, and then I'd been in third place at 65. Um, and then the diver who was going for gold uh, had a surface blackout and so I ended up in, in second position. Wow, very mm. cool in a way, isn't it? It's so fascinating how how that works, how you have to nominate and then, yeah, you're right, you really have to keep your ego in check. How do you yeah. deal with fear? Do you get scared at all? Did you get scared doing freediving and how do you overcome fear? Mm. Yeah, it's. I think it's a matter of being really honest with yourself and uh, your capabilities and 
Uh, it's also, you know, it's okay to be afraid. And if something just doesn't feel right, then it's okay to go back to the surface. And I think in a sport like freediving, it's always better to err a little bit or, or a lot on the side of caution, really. And mm. Um, like I definitely tell my students like this, you know, there's no need to really push yourself out of your comfort zone in this sport. It's all about progressing really slowly and, and staying within your comfort zone because you don't want to risk an injury. And, mm. um, like there's no age limit in this sport. You can, uh, there were divers at the world championships in the masters category who are over 70 years old, um, mm. diving, you know, 40 meters deep or much deeper. And, um, so you can always keep diving. You can always dive again another day. Um, so it's always better to, to, to play it safe and, and just, um, do dives that, you know, you're capable of and that you're comfortable doing. When will you attempt the world record again? Is that still kind of just nibbling away at you? <laughs> yeah. Away? Can you not? <laughs> yeah, I would absolutely love to. Um, at the moment, I'm just, you know, taking it one day at a time and, and one dive at a time and, and seeing where I'm at um, and not not really rushing into anything. I'm like, you know, I'm in this for the long game. <laughs> so there's, mm. there's no rush, but I'm going to, I, I want to stay at a high level in the sport for as long as I can. And um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully the yeah, the conditions present themselves that I'm able to have another go at it. And what's been the most, you talked about the sharks, but what has been probably the most amazing encounter that you've had with ocean life in, in your trainings and in competition? Where has it been the moment that just went, oh my gosh, I'm in another world and this is amazing right now? Uh, there have been so many, to be honest. Um, when you spend this much time in the ocean, you have so many like, yeah, pinch me experiences. Um, but I do a lot of, um, like I try to do a lot of um, travel just for like fun, freediving as well as competition. Mm. And I, a couple of years ago, I went to Sri Lanka um, to see the blue whales. And that was, uh, that was phenomenal. I never thought I'd see a blue whale in person. And and the ocean in Sri Lanka was uh, unlike any ocean I've seen before. It was so flat and so blue. And I remember um, like just floating in the middle of the ocean and there was like a thousand meters of water below us. And it was so clear that you could just see forever. And mm. uh, just amazing to know there's so much water below you and and seeing those blue whales come past and they are, you, you can't even imagine the size of them. And they don't even look like they're moving, like they're not, uh, they're not like moving their tails or their fins at all, but they're just flying past you like a, like a torpedo. Um, yeah, they're reasonably close, but, uh, also the visibility in the water is amazing. Mm. So you can see a long way. Uh, so it's hard to tell, but, um, but yeah, just, just huge, <laughs> just yeah. awesome, just awesome. Yeah. I've heard you talk about as well, even in, is, correct me if I'm wrong, is it, is it in the outback or is it in country areas in Queensland, maybe in Victoria, there are these random holes in a, in a field? Am I dreaming these? Did I hear you talk about these yes, on stage? Yes, I remember just thinking that's totally random. What is that? Um, yeah, that was in South Australia. I was part of a couple of um, freediving retreats to a place called Mount Gambia, which is a little town in, mm -hmm. in South Australia. And it is full of these sinkholes, like the land there is just riddled with these holes in the ground. Um, 
that open up into these freshwater sinkholes. And the water there is like the clearest water you've ever seen, like the clearest water on earth. Um, so it's just like floating in midair and it's, it's really cold, the water, mm. uh, but absolutely stunning. Uh, the, one of them in particular that we dived is uh, called Killsby Sinkhole and it's on a farm owned, owned by a guy called Graham Killsby and he literally just has this sinkhole in the middle of his farm. There's like cows <laughs> around and you're like in a paddock and then you walk down mm. these stairs into this like uh, limestone like cave full with this crystal clear water in the uh, it's underground, uh, but it has a small opening at the top. And when the sun uh, comes to the right level, the sunlight through the cave like puts these shards through the water and it, it's really special. It's very pretty. Any wildlife down there at all? Uh, uh, just, just one hole. turtle. <laughs> there was one turtle. turtle. I forget his name, but, yeah, there was a turtle. <laughs> wow. But not, not much. Is it because no. of the limestone that keeps it? So crystal clear? Yeah, I, I believe it filters the water and that's how the water is, is so clear. He actually makes gin out of it too. <laughs> but oh, it's, right. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's, a real, it's a real experience. Who doesn't want to swim in a sinkhole of gin? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I found this so super fascinating, this whole chat. Um, congratulations on on such an incredible career so far with mm. um with everything that you're doing with with free diving should you attempt the world record please come back and we'll yeah, update the podcast absolutely. on that as well but congratulations <laughs> on your silver at the world champs as thank well thank you so much there is one final question before we leave we ask everyone if you could go back to that little 10 year old amber burke what message would you give her I'd say just just don't hide who you are. Don't be ashamed of who you are. Uh, be proud of, of what you're passionate about because, you know, that's how you find your tribe. That's how you find your people. And, and um, that's what's going to make you happiest. And uh, But I'd also say um, you, you could probably find something to read that's not Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> but, nice, yeah. but, yeah, nice. be true to yourself. Don't Don't hide who you are. Fantastic. Great message. Amber, thank you so much for sharing your story with On Her Game. Thank you. On Her Game is presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Nikki Sitch, executive producer, Jennifer Goggins. 